Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720. Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois. Glory to Jesus Christ. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Welcome to Light of the East. And once again, Katie Goulis joins us today, and we're always happy to have her. So glory to Jesus Christ, Katie. Glory to him forever, Father Tom. Are you happy to be here? Yes, very happy to be here. (laughs) We're happy that you are here. And I'm happy to say that I had a most wonderful experience recently at the marriage retreat that I directed together with the Tabor Life Institute that I've connected with. And we had this retreat at the Shrine of Our Lady of Mario Poach in Burton, Ohio. And I had a great time there, as always, in these kinds of venues. But I also understand that some of the people there also had a very good time. In fact, one of them had the kindness to write to me. This is Mary, and she says this, Thanks so much for the wonderful day retreat in Burton. Upon waking up today, I can't help but contemplate life with two eyes, incarnationally and integratedly. I look forward to sharing this message as best I can to all who will listen. May our Lord continue to bless your most needed ministry. Well, thank you, Mary. And Mary made a little pun there, which actually she was quoting a pun that I promote, pun intended, where I say that we see, especially in the Eastern Church, with two eyes— We have to look with both eyes. I, an I word, incarnationally. And the other word that you heard from Mary's letter, integrationally. Two I words, seeing with both eyes. And this is very much at the heart of Eastern spirituality, especially demonstrated in its iconography. We're going to talk a little bit about iconography today, and also because I just came away from a place that is famous for an icon, or Lady of Maria Poch, is based upon a devotion to an icon that was miraculous, a miraculous icon in the village of Maria, Maria Poch in Hungary. And we're going to listen to a great story about that, a very relevant and urgent story, actually, it turns out to be, about this icon. So I was at the Shrine of Lady of Maria Poch in Burton, Ohio, directing a marriage retreat and talking about a spirituality that is very much evident in iconography. I mentioned the two words, incarnational and integrational. You see, the spirituality of the Eastern churches, as especially reflected in its iconography, is based upon this. It's a very strong stress on the fact that an invisible God, a very transcendent invisible God, a God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a great mystery, a union and communion of persons, 
becomes one with that which he created. In other words, the invisible God and all invisible realities like eternity and the very interior life of eternal love, perfect love of the Trinity, all of those kinds of things, those very incredible mysteries become very tangible, very visible, precisely through the very physical order that God himself created. In other words, to put it briefly, incarnation, something we're going to celebrate very soon as the stores are already reminding us. That, of course, is Christmas. Now, in the Eastern Church, we oftentimes refer to Christmas as the incarnation or the divine condescension. We use the term incarnation because it means just that. The word incarnation means to enflesh. In other words, this invisible God enfleshes himself. You know, incarnate, carnation or carni, like carnivorous, means like a meat, you know, having to do with meat or flesh or meat-eating animals, carnivorous. So God enfleshes himself through the mother of God, a perfect human being, and he makes now what is invisible visible. And because of that, we now have a vision, a view of the whole created order, which in turn is not only incarnational, but it is also the other I word, same with the other I, what I call integrational. In other words, we see how everything is connected. What we experience in church at liturgy provides the context for things like marriage and family, for our domestic church, which then in turn finds its ultimate fulfillment in heaven. The liturgy that we celebrate, especially in the Eastern churches, is a connection, a sort of a making present, a participation in the heavenly liturgy. And our homes and our personal lives are to reflect that. Even the workplaces, even the government, nations, are all supposed to reflect the very thing that we begin our worship in in the Byzantine church. And that is when we say, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. All things participate in and reflect the kingdom of God. In other words, as we say in the Our Father, we ask God to make on earth that which is in heaven. You know, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask our Lord to make what is in heaven, make that also on earth. And in fact, in the Eastern spirituality, that's how we see all of life. That's the basis of liturgy, and it's the basis of our iconography. Iconography makes present, makes visible, invisible realities, but so does a candle in church, or incense, or our prayer, our gesture, the sign of the cross, the Eucharist, the icons. Everything makes present that invisible reality, and so we see it all together. It's all related. You know, we just don't go to church. We just don't do our obligation. Rather, we enter into this mystery, and then as we move out of church, we take that mystery with us so that we influence the workplace. We influence politics, government, most especially our homes, our families. This was meant by the domestic church, that we take a piece of heaven as experienced in the liturgy, and we put that into our daily lives, our lives at home, our marriages, our families. When we're single, a home should be like a mini church. This is making visible the invisible. This is being liturgical. In the Eastern churches, iconography is one of those mediums for this making visible what is invisible. 
Now, we're coming up pretty soon. In fact, it'll be next Sunday, October 17th, in the Eastern calendar, many Eastern calendars. We're going to celebrate the Seventh Ecumenical Council. It'll be the Sunday of the Holy Fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So it was actually the Second Council of Nicaea, in which they ratified the true use and devotion and creation of icons. In other words, they said it, it could happen, that it was all right. Why did they need this council? Well, as always, whenever a council is convened in the church, especially Eastern churches, Eastern churches put a lot of weight on the councils, the council fathers. That's why we have these holy days that honor them, and even especially holy days that we put them on Sunday so the whole church can honor these council fathers. The reason is because there was something that was being misinterpreted. In other words, a certain heresy or a confusion. So that we get all the council fathers together, bishops, theologians, priests, and deacons, and so on, all the great minds and holy men together, and they would come together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they would kind of hash out what the Holy Spirit really was saying on a particular issue. The councils are very, very, very important in the Eastern churches in terms of what we believe, what we base our faith upon. And the Seventh Ecumenical Council, what they did was they corrected what was an over-interpretation or misinterpretation, exaggeration of some particular lines in the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, having to do with images. For instance, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, this is the section where Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. It says this, Then God delivered all these commandments. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above, or in the earth below, or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their father's wickedness on the children of those who hate me down to the third and fourth generation. And the verse goes on and on, of course. But this verse, and it's also echoed in other places in the Bible, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where he says, You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above or on earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. These passages, obviously very strong in, in their force and their theme, have been for centuries taken out of context. The reason why God said this to Moses was not because we could not make images that remind us of God, but rather God was trying to get across the Israelites at that time. He was trying to set up the covenant, the situation. In other words, this is how it is. Make sure that I am your God. Don't be making and worshiping these strange idols that people carve out of wood or bronze or gold and so on. This is the point he's trying to make. He was not trying to say you can never make any kind of image because also in the scripture, God commands the Israelite people for the Ark of the Covenant to actually make images of angels and put those images, carve these images and put it around the Ark of the Covenant. So God is not saying that we cannot make things that put us in touch with him in our hearts through something visual or through incense or candles or whatever appeals to the senses. God is not saying that at all. He was simply trying to take the Jewish people away from any kind of the false gods that were prevalent at the time. And many of these were had to do with even worshiping physical things, man-made things, as though these things had some kind of power in them. Much like we know about the Greek and Roman gods. You know, they would make statues of these gods, you know, Mars and Zeus and Venus and so on, and worship them. Well, God is trying to steer the Israelites away from that, as he's trying to do to us as well. He tries to steer us away in all generations from anything that is not worship and honor of he, the true God. We're going to talk more about this passage from Scripture and about iconography and seeing incarnationally and integrationally 
when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. How shall I tell this great mystery? I am Father Thomas J. Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. He who is without flesh becomes incarnate. The Word puts on a body. The invisible is seen. He whom no hand can touch is carried, and he who knows no beginning now begins to be. The Son of God becomes the Son of Man. These words were taken from the Christmas prayers of the Byzantine Catholic Church. Turn our thoughts to the great mystery. God has condescended, bent the heavens, made a gift of himself, and entered into a spousal relationship with his own creation. The entire order of creation, most especially our human bodies, speak the language of this mystery. We are created male and female precisely so that we too could make a gift of ourselves. We too could love as God loves. Christ is born, glorify him. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. We're talking about seeing integrationally and incarnationally. In other words, the way that we see in the Eastern churches, especially as reflected in our icons. Iconography, the official art of the Eastern churches, makes visible what is invisible through line and paint and color. There's a very classic book in iconography I'd recommend to you. It's called The Meaning of Icons by Uspensky and Losky. And in this book, the authors say this. The entire visible world as depicted in the icon is to foreshadow the coming unity of the whole creation of the kingdom of the Holy Ghost. The theological justification of the icon was derived by the Seventh Ecumenical Council from the fact of the incarnation of God. God became human for the elation and deification of man. This deification becomes visible in the saints. The Byzantine theologian often sets the calling of an iconographer, an icon painter, on an equal level with that of a priest. Devoted to the service of a more sublime reality, he exercises his objective duty the same way as the liturgical priest. The spiritual genius of the icon, the cryptic, almost sacral power to convince, is not alone due to accurate observation of the iconographic canon, but also to the ascetic fervor of the painter. In other words, 
to paint icons, to be a for real iconographer, is actually part of a lifestyle. It's a part of a very devout lifestyle, very much like living the life of a priest. You heard the word from our authors today about being liturgical. In other words, living liturgically like a priest does, meaning that a priest sees and celebrates in his sacramental duties the invisible made visible. He sees God revealed in all of creation, and he offers that back to God in praise and thanksgiving. There's a certain way to do that, a certain ritual, and a certain lifestyle that you must maintain. And part of that lifestyle has to do with the element of asceticism, which means things like praying, fasting, dying to self, either a life or elements of celibacy in your priesthood, even if you're married. Well, it's the same with iconographers. Iconographers began basically as monks in the monastery. So already you're talking about a vocation. You're talking about a very special kind of lifestyle, which is a very special kind of lifestyle, which is marked in part by this asceticism. An iconographer is someone who basically is embracing a vocation, a vocation much like a monastic. It involves asceticism, dying to self, prayer, holiness, understanding theology, and adhering to the process and the canons, as it were, of icon painting. I am oftentimes referred to as an iconographer. My life was always in the arts, and eventually I began to do icons, as is the need of the church. So I'm often called an iconographer. And I guess you could say that about me, although at the same time I hesitate to officially call myself that because it is a very lofty vocation and a very special one that I don't really consider myself worthy, although I try. Maybe because I'm a priest, I have a certain maybe foot into it as far as uh, being an iconographer because I live a life as a priest as well. But that life is a specific kind of life. And oftentimes I hear people today saying that they're iconographers or they paint icons. And I kind of have two reactions to that. One, I'm a little cautious because this is not something you can just call yourself. Not anyone can just call themselves an iconographer. Or you cannot say just that I am painting icons. Icons are not just a craft. Oftentimes, and more and more often, there are studios and classes being set up where people learn how to paint icons. And they paint an icon or two or whatever, and, which is okay. But I will caution about that because of the integrity of this art form, this liturgical, canonized, sacred art form. Iconography, you have to remember, is not like a craft. It's not like taking a ceramics class learning how to make pottery. It's as noble as that is. Iconography is the art of the church, which requires an entire lifestyle. And it also requires, I may add, being an artist, a certain amount of artistic ability. Let's face it, we want to give our best to God. So you want to be able to produce beautiful, good art that is also imbued with the right spirituality and theology. And you want to have that done by the person who's living that life as well. So there's a lot to this thing called icons and iconography and iconographers. Now, I'm not discouraging the pursuit of it. I'm glad to see it to an extent. But I also want to make sure that we preserve the integrity of this art and of the lifestyle that it requires of its painters, of its producers, its iconographers. So how did the church fathers eventually justify painting icons, making images or carving images or whatever form, whatever medium? How did they eventually justify being able to do that, even though the Bible seems to be very clearly against it? Well, as we said before, we have to understand what the Bible is saying there. It's not against images that make us and help us be mindful of God, to draw us into prayer. God is not against images or anything that helps make himself present to us. Rather, he's against directing those things, our attention to those things, towards anything that is not him. 
What happened in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the fathers got together and said this, look, because God himself made himself an image in the person of Jesus Christ, in other words, the invisible God, the second person of the invisible Trinity, became enfleshed. And now we have an image of God. We can see God through this image. Why is it we can't then paint the same image or carve the same image or in some way reproduce the same image through human hands or a model reflection of it? Precisely because of what God himself did, we can justify painting images of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, through iconography. Now, the Trinity in particular, though, is painted largely by symbol. For instance, God the Father is never painted directly in iconography because God the Father was only revealed through his Son. So generally, to reveal the Trinity, including God the Father, iconography uses three angels. Three angels that visited Abraham in Genesis 18, in which afterwards he said, oh, I was visited by God. So we have the first foreshadowing of the Trinity in the Bible. But also, the Holy Spirit was never really seen except in the form of a dove or fiery tongue. Iconography will use the image of the bird, the white dove, but it's kind of ensconced in this sort of radiating kind of nimbus. So it's kind of, in a sense, vague. It's not like a real naturalistic bird, as it were. It's kind of a suggested bird, a suggested dove, because that's how the, the Holy Spirit did appear. But by and large, the Trinity, God, is painted or depicted in iconography through the person of Jesus Christ, images of Christ, because he himself was an image of the Father in heaven. Icons have great power to them. In fact, Katie's going to read an interesting story about a little bit of history about this icon of Our Lady of Maria Poch. And, but this history becomes extremely relevant for our day. Katie's going to read directly from a book that is the guidebook for St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, Austria. This is what it says in that book. On the southwest high Gothic Baldachin altar is the highly revered icon of Maria Poch. On the 1st of December, 1697, it was put on the high altar above the tabernacle for the purposes of worship. It was moved to this spot in 1945. The likeness is named after its place of origin in Poch in northern Hungary, where it was painted by Stefan Pepp in 1676. Upon being mounted in the village church in 1696, it shed tears. Ultimately, the fame of the miracle-working painting reached the imperial court of Vienna. Urged on by Padre Marco D'Aviano, the deeply religious Emperor Leopold I had the painting brought to Vienna and kept in his residence. After having been displayed in various churches for devotional purposes by popular request of the Viennese, it subsequently reached its final place of worship in the cathedral. Abraham of Santa Clara attributed a Prince Eugene's decisive victory over the Turks in the Battle of Zenta on September 11, 1697, to the painting. Thereupon, the Habsburgs promoted the icon to the status of a palladium, a personal devotional shrine of their empire. Now, did you catch that, what Katie was reading? The battle that took place between the Christian Eastern Europeans, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the invading Muslim Turks. Because many times during history, invading Muslims tried to overtake Europe, especially they were coming up in through Eastern Europe or also also in Spain. And they were eventually defeated in decisive battles. One of the famous ones, of course, is the Battle of Lepanto. But this Battle of Zenta happened on 9-11. 9-11. Now we have an icon that has a history to it, but also now a real relevancy to it. We were attacked on 9-11 in America by those who were considered to be radical, extremist, Muslim terrorists. 
And I believe that perhaps this icon and the shrine in which it now sits, at least the reproduction of it in Burton, Ohio, might actually become a new vehicle for our day, perhaps a vehicle for prayer, for peace, to the end of terrorism, and peace between Islam and Christianity, because this icon has an interesting history to it. 9-11. It was through this devotion, through this icon, that the people at that time believed that this victory of 9-11 that kept Islam from overrunning Christianity, they believed that that was attributed to the intercession of this miraculous icon. And maybe devotion to that icon today can help bring about peace between Islam and Christianity and an end to terrorism. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again for the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.